So welcome to A Close Call with Death. And we're starting tonight's session with guest John Knapp, who is uh, a person that I've come to know in the community. And um, we just ran into each other after years of knowing each other. And, and I was talking about the podcast and about um, people's lives of overcoming adversity and and um, and overcoming challenging situations, whether it's death or I mean, um, illness or accidents or whatever that causes them to nearly die. And, and John said, my gosh, you know what? Um, I, I have a story um, and my situation I really feel like, you know, I could have died and, and many people in my situation could. And, um, and so we should talk about it. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is a great topic. I'm going to have John on the show. So John Knapp is in the studio right now. And I'm so grateful that you've come uh, to talk to us today. So welcome, John. Oh, this is exciting. I uh, never thought I'd be talking about near death, but hey, it happened. <laughs> and I'm super glad that you're alive. So this is a great reunion. Um, starting out, John, tell me a little bit about you, your, your age, um, your, um, you know, just your current up-to-date livelihood situation. And then we'll dig into where we're going with this whole thing of why, um, you had a near call, uh, near, near call with death. So I just turned 72. So just a few weeks ago and, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, so lived in New Jersey, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and I've lived in many cities around the country. Uh, I was always a healthy youth and teenager. I mean, examples, I did the JFK 50-mile hike invitation that he put out there as president. Uh, I took a cross-country 10-speed bike from Salt Lake City to New York at 15 years old. <laughs> so it's not your everyday, No, you know, it was, it was exciting. Oh, I have a question. When was that? About what year? That was 67. 67. So you did that during a time when there aren't all these power supplement type squirt in your mouth um, things. How many PBJs or, or any did that take you to get that far? And what did you eat in those kind of trips? No, it was a 2300 mile trip. Yeah. We, we had brand new 10 speed bikes our parents bought us. So we weren't all tuned into a bike. Uh, you're not clipped in. You're not wearing cycle shorts. You're wearing cutoffs. You also don't have that pad built into your pants. No pads. Right for your rear end. No pads. Uh, T-shirt, <laughs> cutoffs, no helmet, oh no gloves. Gosh. No sunglasses. Just a couple of kids pedaling across the country. Just two of you. Just two of us. Well, huh. started out with three. One had to give it Bail. up. Okay. Yeah. And that, that was exciting. Uh, 67 was a dangerous year. The Detroit riots were going on as we approached Detroit. And we don't, we're not watching radio, TV, or newspapers. Yeah. And we see this glow that we thought was a sunset behind Detroit. It was fire. Oh, my god! The whole city was on fire. And if you look at, if you Google on it, it's the biggest riot of U.S. history was the Detroit riot. Really? And here we come. And you're riding up on it in a couple yeah. of 10 speeds. So the cops pulled up to us and said, where are you going, guys? We're going to Detroit. No. You're not going to go You got to go north to Canada and go around this. And we're like, that's 300 miles. Yeah. You got to get out of here. Uh, so a little diversion of 300 miles from a bike trip. So <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Huh. Yeah. So I came back from that trip and we had our football hell week and I was pretty ready. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. was, it was tw 10 to 12 hours of cardio per day for three weeks. So we did 100 miles a day is basically. So you did. really were in great shape oh, as, as a youth. Yeah. So you're, you're 6'2", right? 6'2". And, and about how much did you weigh then? Oh, it was about 175. Yeah. Yeah. So it muscle, was, super it was, legs. It was awesome. So, you know, the body's been healthy, you know, in those days and no health issues at all. You know, it was yeah. just. And then went to BYU at university out here at Provo, Utah. Mm-hmm. That's a big change from the East Coast. Did you and play any sports at BYU at, the, at all? I didn't. I, I did their intramural sports, yeah. which are pretty serious. Yes, they are. You say intramural. These are all the guys that didn't make the football team. They yeah. were playing yeah. intramural sports. Yep. Yep. So it was pretty intense. <laughs> and I learned to snow ski. And You know, those of you that are snow skiers, uh, I learned on a 600-foot little tiny hill in New Jersey. So when they said, do you ski? And I said, yeah, I ski. Yeah, Snowbird yeah. was their place. They took me up a tram, oh. 10,000 feet. 
and I'm looking at all this like, uh, guys, I'm not sure <laughs> I, I ski like this. But yeah, you yeah. could die right there. I learned. Yep. I learned. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, back east in Jersey, uh, on those little hills, it's really ice skiing, yes, isn't it? It is. It's, as opposed to the powder here in Utah. Oh, yeah. We have the best snow in Utah. We do. I love it. Best snow on earth. So I did lots of cycling, lots of walking. I stayed healthy through the college years and mm-hmm. enjoyed, you know, a lot of sports. And married in 75. I was 23. I was pretty young. But I was very fit. I was playing competitive racquetball at open class level. I was playing squash at uh, A level. So I was right up there just before you go into the semi-pro pro stages. Right. So I was just loving life and worked for IBM out of, out of college and started traveling a lot. And here comes the weight being put on. So when you're traveling, you're by yourself, you're staying in hotels, and oftentimes you're just eating, dining by yourself, stress eating, all kinds of things like that. Late, late night dinners, some business dinners, no workout, getting up and just hammering it out. Just hammering it out. Mm -hmm. And then Bob, it changed to international assignments. So I'm traveling all over the world. And just to give you an example, 2.7 million miles with Delta. So that gives you some idea. Oh, it gives me a great idea. I, I have a friend who just reached the 2 million mark just this weekend. He was telling me about it. And that's so much. And you even blew past that. Yeah, it's, it equates to, I calculated it, 2.7 million miles is 2.7 years in a fuselage of an airplane, 24-7. Oh. That, that's what 2.7 million miles that's is. That's incredible. But what does that mean? It means you're sedate. You're just sitting there for eight and 10 hour international flights. Yes. And you're once again doing late night dinners internationally and there's no working out going on. Mm -hmm. And here comes the sedate lifestyle and the, you know, gaining weight. It wasn't a lot of weight. I was gaining three and four pounds a year, but I did this for 20 to 30 years. Yeah. So you do the math. a lot of weight. (laughs) And, And what were you starting to weigh? Well, I was already getting up into the 250 range, um, and then I started tracking to 270, um, and then towards the end of all this, this part of my life, I was getting up, you know, right up at between 270 and 300, and I mean, you, you are just, you're dysfunctional when you're that heavy. You can't do sports anymore. Sure. It's just, it just goes away, and you don't have any desire to. Right. I mean, you don't even want to get out of the couch. Like, yeah. hey, can you bring me that remote control? I don't want to get up and walk over and get it. So. Was this just mind-blowing to you that you were getting to this? Did Ugh. you see it come and look in the mirror and you could see yourself changing? Yeah, yeah. But the lifestyle was so intense and the yeah. international travel was so intense that it dominated. And so that's that's kind of where things started to uh, fade a little bit. It started playing on your psyche a little bit then? Just... Did you face some depression issues or anything? No, I wasn't depressed. Um, unfortunately, I have a healthy ego. And so when I look in a mirror, I'm not seeing the 300-pound guy. Yeah. You ever notice a mirror can change how you actually see yourself? But not photos of you. Photos, you, for some reason, it doesn't work. A photo shows you as you are, and the brain can't change it. But a mirror eh, it can do a little twist and turn and <laughs> make you think, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So that's how that happened. But there was, uh, there was things happening, though. When you gain a lot of weight, things are happening. Like melanoma cancer was showing up two or three times. And skin cancer is one that you cut it out in time, no big deal. You don't even need chemo. You don't need radiation. They caught it. So you're good. Yeah. If they don't catch it and it took off, uh, it's typically three to six months and you're gone. Oh. So melanoma is a, it's a black or white disease. You, Deadly. You caught it early or you didn't. And uh, the last one I had, um, I remember somebody asking me, so how dangerous is this, John? I said, it's very simple. They caught it in time or they didn't. They cut it out and then they'll call you and say, we got it. You're because good. It, it can just like jump to stage four quickly and, and spread to other organs oh, in your blood rapidly. system. Yeah. It is, and and here in Utah, we're the worst. We have the highest rate of melanoma skin cancer in the country. Talk about that. Why why is that? Altitude and UV 
and intensity. Uh, it all plays, you know, and we tend to be fair-skinned folks. And so we, you know, if you've got reddish hair and bright white skin and you are out there and you're not protecting yourself. You're doomed. You're doomed. Yeah. 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 And I've had friends that got melanoma and three months later, they're gone. And it's like, whoa, I had Wake that. Call. I had that. Yeah. And they're gone. Yeah. And it's so rapid because it just takes off to the organs and does its thing. So did you just start feeling ill or did you just visually see it? You started feeling different? That's the problem with melanoma. You don't feel a thing. There's no symptoms. You, you have to observe your skin. And if anything looks blotchy and irregular borders and coloration on it, yeah. you got to get into a skin doctor and they'll tell you, a dermatologist yeah and they send it in and they test it and then you get that dreaded call and it's uh john it's melanoma so let's get you in here and get that cut out yeah yeah so and and i ask that because uh, the individual listeners that will be listening to this today um they there's some that need a wake-up call they need to really pay attention to that some that never even thought about it that maybe need to get in and see a dermatologist and and just a frequency of at least once a year, get in, get checked, and, and hopefully they'll, they'll stay out of it. That's what saved me. In every one of, I had three bouts with melanoma. Mm-hmm. Every time, it's because I go in regularly. It wasn't, I wasn't letting much time go by. And if something Good. popped up, I don't care if I just saw a doctor two months ago. If there's yeah. something, I know what it kind of looks like. Okay, that's a good coach uh, as well. You know, just if you see something pop up, don't wait for the annual. Just go in and get it taken care of, and they'll work you in. They will. Yeah. Especially if you're a previous melanoma, you know, candidate. Yes. And it's it's painless. I mean, the, the surgeries are, depending on where it's at. For some people on their face, it can be pretty graphic what they have to do. But most of it's on your back. It's on your arms, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. And as men, we don't care if there's a scar on our forearm. No, the ladies no. might, but we don't. Well, and if it's on your face, you can get a new part in Braveheart um, movie or something <laughs> like <right>. that. So, <laughs> so um, this is interesting. You know, you're, you're going along and you're super healthy and you're a kid that rides across the country on a 10 speed bike. You're um, healthy as a horse. And uh, now you're gaining weight and, uh, and, and you're starting to see life take its toll how old were you when this is all going on just barely out of college or in your no, 30s no, this, this took into the mid 30s okay and then all of a sudden you're being diagnosed as pre-diabetic you know and it's like what i'm pre-diabetic yes you're pre-diabetic and you're being called obese by the doctor and we need to work with this you know and and all of a sudden you start adding up things up like melanoma is showing up and pre-diabetic is showing up and all these signs of not, these are not good signs No, that uh, you need to be aware of. But then the big kahuna shows up when I'm 44. 44 years old, I did drop the weight down to 270. That's nothing to be proud of, but I got it down to 270. But one morning I was coming back from Hong Kong and it's a long flight. Those of you who have been on that flight, that's 10, 12 hours. And you're sedate. You're not moving. You're idle. The day before, I hadn't eaten much. I was running through a hard day of work in Hong Kong. Didn't drink much at all. So I was dehydrated. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was pretty to- wasted. I get on the plane. I slept from Hong Kong to San Francisco airport. So I've never done that before. So I thought, hmm, that's weird. Yeah. And what tells you is my body was hurting and hurting bad and I just uh next morning I get up and go into the shower and this is where it happened Bob I'm sitting there showering like you guys and all of a sudden kabam there was this pain that hit the head like like somebody drove a spike into my head and it knocked me out of the shower and onto the floor and I'm laying there and it's like I felt like I was, I don't know what it's like to be shot in the head, but it felt like I just got shot in the head. Oh my gosh. And I'm laying there like, what in the world is this? Yeah. Yeah. And my wife comes running in and she goes, John, John, I'm calling 911. I said, no, do not call 911. Just give me a moment. I just got to, I just got to get control here. I'm out of control. Do a little assessment, see what's going on. My whole body feels out of control. So just give me a moment. And this is a big piece of advice. 
if something major hits you, don't be macho. No. Don't deal with the pain. Don't say, I can deal with this. I'm going to grip this and get through this. Yeah. I'm not going to pay for an ambulance. I'm not going to go to a hospital. You know, no. All the people that are trying to keep their health care costs down and not use yeah. their health insurance. Uh, in, in this situation, it's time to definitely oh. see a doctor. Call 911. And, and looking back on it, what was I thinking? Hmm. You know, today it would be immediately get me a, an ambulance. Yeah. Immediately. Because yeah. you know this isn't normal. You know this is nothing you've experienced before. And then right after that, minutes after that, my vision went blurred. I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't see any. It was just all heavy blurred vision. I still didn't want to go in. So I just said. My gosh, you're stubborn. Yeah, I was stubborn. Yeah. I said, help me to the bed. I couldn't get up and walk to the bed. So I walked to the bed and I said, just give me an afternoon to just get a grip and get back to normal. Were you kind of in a way just afraid of facing what might be going on or um, just going to the doctor might be fearful? And what was going through your mind? No, there wasn't fear and there wasn't fear of medical help or doctors or, you know, ambulances and all that. It was more, I'll get, I'm going to push through this. Because I always had a high threshold for pain. Yeah. I just deal with pain. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's better if you don't have a high threshold for dealing with pain. For sure. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm laying there in bed. And after a half a day in bed, you know, my wife comes up. So, so are you feeling better? I am weaker and weaker and weaker. You know, I'm getting weak. No appetite. Can't see anything. And I'm, I'm just laying there motionless and john talk about that pain in your head was it you know from side to side through your ears in your eyes behind your eyes what kind of head pain was it and just in case somebody feels like you did you know they'll know this is super serious it was isolated to the back of the head and it was a sharp pain like i said like if somebody shot drove yeah got shot in the back of the head or got a nail driven in the back of your head or something graphic yeah and it was right there and I just figured it was a migraine. I never had a migraine, but I thought this might just be a migraine. So yeah, tough yeah. it out and push through the migraine. <laughs> and this is, this is going to not be believable to everyone. Mm-hmm. But I stayed in that stubborn position for two weeks. Oh, my gosh. I never left the bed. I never left the bed except to stumble to the restroom for two weeks. And you, your vision was still blurred and you blurred. had that horrible headache. Well, the headache was not there. The headache was gone. But I was as weak as weak could be. I didn't want to watch TV. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want conversation because it was painful. Yeah. I just wanted to be left alone in the bedroom. Two weeks. Like, what is up with that? Yeah. And the ER doctor across the street comes over and says, John, what's going on? I said, uh, just not feeling real well. So how long have you been in bed? Two weeks. Have you gotten up? Not really. Do you have a desire to get up? No. John, we got to get you into help. We got to get some help. Like, what's going on with your eyes? I don't know. He says, let's start there. Whatever it takes to get you into that car and over to an ophthalmologist, let's get your eyes tested. This is wrong. This is crazy that you've had two weeks of blurred vision. Yeah. So I go in there, ophthalmologist doing his routine and dilates the eyes, all the stuff you'd expect. And then he totally goes out of character as a doctor. You're supposed to be, you know, discreet and be careful what you say around your patient. He goes, oh my gosh, like that. And I'm like, what? Uh, just a minute. And he runs to his nurse, nurse, call ER. Tell ER we're bringing a patient in with, with a serious case of papilledema. And we need stat attention to this. Mm. And I'm like... Um, what's papilledema? Uh, John, we just got to get you some help and we got to get it now. And I said, well, give me some idea. John, I'm looking in your eyes and there's blood capillaries exploding like fireworks, which means you have all kinds of things going on inside your, in your brain where there's bleed outs and there's capillaries exploding and Oh my gosh. These, and he could see it happening right before his eyes. Oh yeah. He was watching it. Yeah. He was terrified. I mean, he was out of character. He was freaked out. 
and I'm picking up on his fear. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I said, well, how serious is this? Uh, it's as serious as it gets. So we got to get you in now. So he said, if you're capable of walking to your car, take off with your your, your driver that's driving you. Yeah. Take off to the ER. Don't even wait for an ambulance. We need you there in minutes. I went, okay. So we stumbled out to the car, go to the hospital. And and so papilledema is really rare. So that word is, a, you know, a word you're not going to hear too often. Hmm. It's it's just fireworks in your in your brain, and you're seeing it through the eyes when they when they dilate your pupils. Yeah, yeah. But it means horrible things are going on, like just horrible. And so that started like this. an aneurysm type thing. Yeah, if you were watching a screen that a doctor's working on your veins or arteries, and you watch it explode right in front of it's, you. Yeah, yeah. It's just blue. You know, it's oh, it's that gosh. kind of a, a moment. So I'm still, I'm stubborn. I'm very stubborn. I go, okay, well, let's go get this fixed. I'm thinking, whatever it is, let's get in. I'm totally alert. I'm totally conscious. I'm, I'm not in pain. And uh, so we get there, and I'm getting all kinds of attention. I mean, there are doctors all around me. There's people barking all kinds of commands and stat this and stat that. And mm-hmm. Get them into an MRI right now. So they jammed me. In it, I'm 270 pounds, and they put me in a 250 pound capacity MRI. Oh, so that means you that barely you fit to, in that tube. They were jamming me in it. It yeah. took about a a, a, a a push per foot. To, that's how hard they were jamming. Oh my gosh! Because they didn't have time to wait for the bigger machine. Yeah, they had to get me done. So they kept wait. Sorry, John, but we got to we got to do this MRI. You know, it's 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 life, it's it's life threatening. We got to find out what's going on. Yeah. Okay, you know, so I'm shoulders are all wedged up and I'm all I can't move a thing. And I said, How long is this going to be? Oh, just 20 minutes. Well, an hour later, I'm still in the cylinder. Mm. Good thing you didn't have claustrophobia. uh, I don't, but I did. Oh my gosh. After an hour of that. Yes. So I said to the the technicians, Hey, I need to come out. Oh, John, we just need another 20 minutes. I said, Hey, I'm saying it calmly, but I need to come out. Don't wait for me to freak out i'm telling you i need to come out now mm-hmm. so they brought me out sedated me jammed me back in oh. and it took them an hour and a half to find what was wrong and and it's called a sinus thrombosis and that's a fancy word for the crown of the head had a blood clot that was stopping any blood from leaving the brain the blood's coming into the brain but it doesn't have a way to leave the brain so it's it's filling up a balloon with water that will keep building until it implodes. Yeah. It's basically what my condition was. So you were ready to just absolutely pop in your head. Right. And it was making the capillaries, the little, little veins like burst. Exploding. Yeah. My gosh. And then the pressure in my head was now immense. It was, you know, really intense. And the optic nerves are flat, and that's what gives you perfect vision. The pressure in my brain was so intense, it bent the optic nerves. They were completely curvature bent. Oh. So that gives you this totally blurred out reaction. Yeah. So I'm just following along with the doctors, and I'm totally coherent. And Bob, I'm talking to them like, like I am you. Yeah. And one doctor said to another doctor, and I heard him, I, I've never had a conversation with a sinus thrombosis, <laughs> thrombosis patient. They're usually comatose. They're usually vegetables. They're usually gone, you know. Yeah, yeah. And here I am now. What are we doing right now? And tell me what's going on here. So I still am in a little bit of denial. Like, can we get to the solution? You know, if you guys need to do surgery, let's do it. You know, if you need to drill a hole in my skull, let's go. You know, why are we waiting? Well, they didn't want to tell me. The pressure was so great in that brain cavity that a, a, a hole into the the skull would have exploded. Everything would have gone crazy. Mm. So they couldn't. And they had me on heparin to thin out to try to get this blood clot in time. But there was no surgery. So here we have a no surgery situation. And so finally, they take me into a room. And I notice I'm not in an ER room. And I go, why are we not operating? Uh, There's nothing we can do, John. We're waiting it out to see if the heparin thins out your blood stops and breaks this clot up that's causing your brain not to 
you know, have blood leaving. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, how long do you think? We don't know. I said, what's your confidence level? We don't know. And so I'm going, hmm. So then finally the surgeon comes in, the neurosurgeon. I'm in a regular room now. I said, why am I not in ICU? He goes, because ICU, we, we're there if we need something from ICU. We don't need anything from ICU. And I'm starting to put it together now. Like, whoa. I said, so you're just waiting to see if this is going to blow. And you're going to be dead. And I'm going to be dead. He says, John, you're not going to survive this. This is when he finally said to me, you're not going to survive this. And I said, I'm not going to survive this. No. So what's going to happen? Well, eventually, the cavity of the brain only has a half inch to play with, and you're already at the full, you know, you're full. Your brain is full, and it's still pouring blood in there. Oh, my gosh. And he says, so, John, you're very coherent. You're able to communicate. Uh, we've kept your family away, and you need to call them and tell them goodbye. And I said, you're saying this matter-of-factly? He says, matter-of-factly. He said, wow. I said, okay, so how long do I have? Uh, minutes, two hours is where we're at. And why can't my family be by my side? Uh, it's pretty graphic, John. Uh, you're not going to feel a thing. When this ruptures and implodes, you're instantly gone. It's like a nanosecond, you're gone. No pain, you're gone. But blood will come out of your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, and it's graphic. Oh. You don't want family by to your see bedside. That. Yeah. It would be something <clears throat> they could never get over it. Sure. Okay. So I called him. And, you know, Bob, everybody may, may have a moment in their life where they, they get a chance to say goodbye to their families. Some may not. I had the chance. And so it was very tender. And I said, five kids, they're all on the phone. I said, okay, everybody, it looks like I'm not going to survive this. Uh, so I'll, I'll die within a number of hours here. But listen, don't lose faith in God. Do not turn against God. Do not curse the heavens. Everybody dies. And I don't want to be on the other side looking back at you guys letting go of everything that you believe in. And yeah, yeah. I want to be proud of you. I want you to be tough. And, you know, we'll see each other again one day. So I need everybody to promise you're not going to let go of your faith and, you know, let go of your value systems. Sure. So everybody did, and they were very, very, I was proud of them. They handled it pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife wasn't handling it too well, so she couldn't even talk. So I just said goodbye to everybody, and, and then the nurse, they assigned a nurse to sit by me until I died. And I said, ma'am, I don't really need you here. And if you don't mind, could you just turn off the light and close the door? I, I'd like to be alone. If these are my final moments, I'd like to be alone. Well, I had a person from my church. He's a religious person that gives blessings and prayers and promises. He comes in and gives me a blessing that I will walk out of the hospital in three days in perfect health. So the neurosurgeon overheard this. And as this gentleman left, he goes, John, he meant well. He meant well, but you're not walking out of this hospital in three days. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. You're, you did the right thing telling your family goodbye. And I said, okay. I said, well, I want to be alone because you said this is going to hit. It'll be over in a nanosecond. I don't need anybody here. And actually, I want to go to sleep. Why do I want to stay awake and wait for this? Right, yeah. He said, well, do you think you can sleep? I said, yeah. Do you want something to sleep? Like, you want something to help you sleep? No. I'm tired. I want to go to sleep. I actually fell asleep, Bob. You know, you're in your final hours of life. I fell asleep. And... how You know what, John? Pause just for a second. Sure. I want to know what you felt like when the, the gentleman from your church gave you a blessing. What did you feel like? In that blessing, you know, did, did you feel like immediate relief or any kind of special spiritual closeness uh, with God or anything during that time? What did you feel like? Well, I knew this gentleman very, very closely. I mean, he's really, really good friend. 
and he doesn't say things like that, you know, casually, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did believe that he had that inspiration, that prompting to say that. But I also heard the doctors giving me absolute clinical evidence that you've got minutes to an hour or two. Yeah. And, and I knew what was going on in, in my body. So, yeah, I was weighing the two things. Like, I, it gave me hope that I might survive this. Yeah. But I was looking at reality that everything is telling me I'm not. And everybody dies. So, Bob, I was looking at it more analytically than spiritually. Mm -hmm. I was saying, mm -hmm. I have a chance. But mm, maybe not. So I went, to, I went to sleep. And if all of you had this moment where you know you're dying, this is it. You've got this hour. You've got this two hours. Are you going to be stressed out? Are you going to be you know, out of control? Do they have to sedate you because you're freaking out? Or are you going to be calm and peaceful about it? Not, I didn't know. You, know. you don't know until you You don't get know there. until you're there. I yeah. was a personality that was at peace. I was calm. I was assured I could talk to my kids without crying and falling apart. I was able to say the things I needed to say. And I, when I was going to sleep, I said, my life's been good. It's been a great life. I had no complaints about my life. And I, I treated it like everybody dies. I mean, this is not like some unusual thing that you die. So I went to sleep. And the next thing I know, here comes sunlight through the window of the hospital. It was morning. And in walks the doctor. He goes, John, I cannot begin to explain anything of why we're still talking. He said, I don't know what this was. He said, we call it a zebra. That's their code word for no medical explanation for the outcome with this patient. <laughs> I said, I don't mind being a zebra. Yeah. You know, I'm happy to be a zebra. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I Happy said, to be here. He, I said, so am I out of the woods? He goes, you are basically your clot had time to dissolve through the night. We thought you had less than two hours. So we didn't, we didn't see that heparin would work that soon. But you had all night. You were sleeping through the night. So the heparin broke up the clot. Blood's flowing now and it's leaving the brain. And I said, so that crisis is over? Yes. And he hesitated like, uh, yes. And I go, why did you hesitate? Uh, there's something else we need to tell you. I said, what? He said, your optic nerves are bent severely and they don't recover. So you will be blind in six weeks. Oh, and I go, I'm going to be blind. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Give me some more yeah. bad news. That's <laughs> like this. I said, how serious are you about that? I go, how accurate do you think? Oh, optic nerves are very predictable. And when they're damaged as severely as yours are, you, you go blind. It's just a medical fact. I said, really? And six weeks, yes. So we're going to set you up with Moran Eye Center, Salt Lake Hospital. And they're going to help you get ready for blindness. And that's going to give you a great advantage to have help before it happens. Great. So I'm going through all these tests, test, test, test. I mean, batteries and batteries of tests. And this went on for seven days. And every day they said, can you see this? I said, yes. No, I mean, can you really see this? Or are you saying that because you know you're going blind and you want to try and convince yourself that you can see? I said, I'm answering your questions. Yes, I can see that, whatever that is. Okay, I'm showing you a mountainside. Do you see any animals on it? Yeah, I see a deer. <laughs> I said, well, that, what kind of deer? It's a doe. How do you know? Because it doesn't have antlers. And he goes, John, you, you really saw it? Yes. And you saw that it didn't have antlers? Yes. Well, that's called eagle vision. That's 2010 vision. Oh, my gosh. You are seeing things that most people couldn't see at that distance on the mountainside. I said, well, you asked me. <laughs> and he goes, all right, how about this? And it's peripheral vision dots. And you have to see, did you see a dot to the left? Did you see a dot to the right? And I nailed everything. Yeah, yeah, I see him. And they, so we're about six days into the testing. They go, okay, John, let's just call a spade a spade. Your eyes are fine. <laughs> there is nothing that's going to happen to you. Is you, that crazy or what? You're not going to be blind. 
and I'm just being kind You're just of, disproving the doctors left and right. Oh, man, it was crazy. And they said to me, um, you don't seem as excited as we thought you would be. Well, I'm going through all these tests, and I'm seeing the things, and so if that tells me I don't have eye problems, then I don't have eye problems. Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess I should be, you know, hopping around. <laughs> and they go, well, you haven't been blind, so you don't know what blindness is like. You're, you're just treating us like, I kind of thought I'd come out of this. I said, I didn't say that. So I, I had just the, a matter of factly guy and you just see the things yeah. the way they are. Yeah. I hate to say it that way. I was just a matter of fact guy. Yeah. Now, am I grateful to the heavens? Yes. Am I grateful to prayer and faith? And yes, of course. Yeah. But I also have this pragmatic side to it all. And I was prepared to die. Uh, I was prepared to be blind. I didn't like it, but you know, okay. Happens to people. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, not just a near-death experience, but a near-catastrophic blindness, you know, and I'm only 44. That's yeah, a long yeah, time to, yeah. to go, you know, blind. So it, it, was, it was one of those things where I, it was life-changing, and yes, as I walked, I walked out of the hospital. I, on purpose, I didn't take a wheelchair. They want you to take of a wheelchair. Of course you didn't. And I said, hey, I had a I had a religious person give me a special blessing that said I would walk out of the hospital. I'm walking out of the hospital. I'm not doing this wheelchair. What'd your friend think that gave you that blessing oh, when you came out? He, he was just, he cried like a baby. He Man. knew, he knew. He said, John, I didn't know how to tell you at the time. I've never had a prompting that strong in my lifetime. He said it was absolute. It was black and white. You were going to be okay. It was, yeah. I had absolute confidence that you were walking out of the hospital, even though I knew your circumstance. I talked to the surgeon before I went in to see you, and he told me you had no hope. So he wanted to be careful. He wasn't being reckless. But he said, I've given hundreds of blessings in my lifetime, nothing like this one. Hmm. It was a beam of light, you know, that you're – and so he said to me, just be sure you figure out why you were saved, you know, why you were kept alive. There is a reason. Find it out and do it, whatever that is. And so I've tried to do that my whole life. I've tried to, you know, look at life from a I'm here because I was saved to be here. I should have died. I, I know that. So my wife and I talk about this fairly regularly. What else do we need to be doing? So we help people. We help refugees, homeless. We help people that are being evicted. We help folks that are out of food. We, we spend a lot of time helping anyone that we can help just because I think we're supposed to be making a difference where we can make a difference. Sure. So What's your relationship with God now as a result of that? It was always strong. Um, I wouldn't say it's stronger because of that, because I already had the faith. I already had the, that, but the gratitude is off the charts. Uh, you know, we have five kids. They went on to have 15 grandkids, and that's our life is these 15. I think about not having that portion of my yes. life. Yeah. And that would have been tragic to mm -hmm. miss out on that. Mm -hmm. And I feel for all those that did die before, you know, they had their either before they had children or before they had grandchildren. They didn't have their families. You know, right. that's rough. You know, they missed that. Mm -hmm. And uh, just grateful. Just a lot of gratitude. That's awesome. I don't take it for granted. I'm sure you don't. So that was in your 40s. And then uh, what really. Outside of, you know, just running into these health issues and stuff, what was the profound turning point in your life where you felt like you really need to get a grip on your overall health conditions and, and, and turn the corner? Well, I, I've been working on that because uh, a lot of the body functions, when you go in for your physical exams, you know, they're, they're not good, you know, high blood pressure or high pre -diabetes heart. Diabetes and all that. Yeah. Pre-diabetic, high blood pressure, high, high heart rate, high resting heart rates, um, all sorts of things that yeah. just come with that right mm -hmm. um had some blood clot battles um that that hit in the you know the deep vein thrombosis clots i had that i had clots hit my heart 
blow through the heart and hit the lungs, both lungs. And, you know, you don't, you have about a 60% chance of not surviving that. Those, those are ruthless, you know, in those clubs. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I came off an airplane and uh, i walking up the gangplank just fine. And all of a sudden, I'm gasping like I just finished a 100-yard dash. And I'm, once again, I'm going, what is this? Like, why yeah. am I gasping? And I w- sat down and I got into the lobby there area. The, and I had a heart watch with me. And I was about 140 heart rate. Just sitting there. Just sitting there. So I waited till it dropped to 100. I got up and I shuffled my little feet and went 100 yards trying to keep my heart rate down. I was trying to get to my car. Now, this is after all that other stuff I did. Yeah, yeah. Why am I not calling for paramedics? Yeah, no kidding. No, now you know me. <laughs> so I'm trying to get to the parking lot. And then I had to sit again. It took about six sitting sessions to get oh. to the parking lot. And it was the short-term parking. I drive home. I walk in. I sit on the couch and my daughter's there. And she said, Dad, what's going on? I said, oh, I just have high heart rate right now. She says, what do you think it is? I said, oh, could be a blood clot from the flight. She goes, well, shouldn't we go into ER? Yeah, we should. <laughs> so she drives us in. He, he does the test and says, okay, you've got, a, you've got a, a clot in the lung, and it's a big one. And he shouldn't say this to my daughter. But my daughter said, well, how serious is it, Doc? Uh, we could lose your dad tonight. Well, I don't want a doctor saying that to a teenage girl. But scared the heck out of her. Oh, yeah. Terrified her. So that one, I I came through that one. And you could call that near death, but nobody was telling me I was going to die. It was, you know, they're treating it. And it's much different when somebody says, you are not going to survive. Make it through the night. You're not going to make it. And you only have a few hours. That's a whole different ballgame. You bet it is. Even though this experience with the lung clot was life-threatening, sixty you percent know, chance you're not going to survive it. Yeah, it's different than being told mm-hmm. it's over. Mm-hmm. You know, so that one I didn't believe I was going to die. Uh, I knew I could, but I didn't believe I was going to die. <laughs> so I had a little bit too many of these, Bob. Where, you know, I had, I think without exaggerating, if if we have nine lives, the cat has nine lives. If if we yeah. have nine lives, I've used up eight. I've only got one more where I get a gift and then no more. That's it. That's, That's it. It's over, folks. But I decided to really get serious about it and, and get out of this being obese and get fit, get back to being an athlete. I was an athlete. And so my son calls me up and says, Dad, you ought to get a Peloton bike. I think it would be great. I said, I'm not paying what? $3,000, Yeah, but look at the medical expenses you spent and bringing yourself back from to life. That's funny, yeah. Yeah. And so he said, how about if I pay half? I go, really? Done. <laughs> Done deal. Deal. Because he was into Peloton. Huh. So I get on a Peloton bike at 300 pounds, and a 15-minute ride wiped me out. Hey, let me ask you that. It, it is a 300-pound, 6-foot-2 guy is big. Big. That is not too big for a Peloton? It's pretty big because when you come up with your knees, you're hitting your belly. Okay. I mean, it, it is not it is not pretty. Yeah. You know, And you have to angle your knees out to the sides because oh you, you can't go in front of you with your knees. Right. You're, you're hitting your belly. Yeah. That's what a 300 pounder is. You do not is. want to do this in front of a mirror, John. No, no. no. So, so my son was riding with me. You can do it online together and. He's watching my really slow cadence and my horrible distance. And I'm tired in 15 minutes. I just gasping. I want to stop. And he told me much later, he said, I thought, oh, what a mistake. I should have never tried the Peloton. For he was going to see his dad die on that bike. Or he just, he can't handle it. Right. Yeah. He's just yeah. not going to be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. And I took it very serious. And I rode every day except Sundays. And I build it up and up and up and up and up. And the weight was coming off in one and two pound a week. Okay, increments. now, how old are you now? I want to kind of give a visual. Way later I, in life now. I'm 60. Uh, probably 65 plus in yeah, that I'm time? Yeah, I'm in the 67 age range now. 67-year-old, 300-pound guy on a Peloton right. fighting back. Yeah, and fighting hard. And my heart rate was always up in the 120s, 130s, 140s. You know, I'm maxing out at 150. 
and Bob, it was, it was a life-changing three and a half years. All of a sudden, it's melting off. It's not melting off fast. It's two pounds a week. But it's coming off. It's coming off every week. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call it dieting, but I had a nutrition plan I followed, and it was 2,450 calorie a day. Um, I'm, I'm riding an hour to two hours every morning, and I'm not. It, 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 at some point, I had moved up to racing pace. So I was at 22 mile an hour for two hours. That's fast, man. That's cooking. Yeah. And I was racing 20 and 30 year olds, 40 year olds, 50 year olds, and I was beating most of them. There's still people out there that are animals on bikes. Yeah. And pros, semi pros. There's just people that are amazing. Mm hmm. But I was always. You're keeping up with them, you're pacing with them. I was always up in, if, if there's. 2,000 people on the ride, I'm in the upper 3%. That's huge. At the finish line. And I found that my endurance was really a, a blessing. I had tremendous endurance. I can hold a pace for a long time. So Peloton was a huge tool. Still is. I ride every day, except Sunday. Um, I'm, I'm running 10, 12,000 miles a year on a bike. I mean, I'm, I'm at it. And I just passed the around the globe, twenty four thousand nine hundred mile mark. Good for you. So that's that's so awesome. That's in three years I pedaled around the globe. That's so cool. And it's fun. And you left fat all over the world. <laughs> oh, <laughs> behind man. you, it's gone. Oh man. And so you're down how much? So I'm 130 down, and and I want to keep going. Um, I'm I'm around a 230, and I want to go down to 195. And I'll, it'll take me, it'll take me a year. Yeah. Cause that last piece is the hardest, but here's the difference. I go into my cardiologist and he is looking at me and he's saying, John, I've noticed you've had a significant weight loss. Are you okay? <laughs> Have you had some kind of a problem? You know, that you need to tell me about. I said, no, I'm riding a bike 30 miles every morning. He says, you're riding 30 miles every morning. I said, yes. <laughs> he said, like easy or hard, as hard as you can go. He said, really? He says, cause I was gonna talk to you about your heart. You're down at a 58 resting heart rate. And for somebody in their late sixties, that's dangerous. But if you're an athlete, it's, it's normal. Perfect, man. It's, yeah. it's normal. So you're telling me you're an athlete. <laughs> yes, sir. He said, resting 58. Yep. And he goes, and your blood pressure is 175 over 78. It's perfect. Oh, by the way, you're not pre-diabetic anymore. That's, that's, Gosh, you worked through all that. Yeah, it's gone. And he said, you had a little spot on your liver that I talked to you about. It's gone. He said, so right at this moment, I have nothing to advise. You, you are just picture perfect health. Carry on. And you probably could take on most 40-year-olds that are serious about their health in a bike race because you're just out there at the highest levels. And then I, I did a Strava app and Strava app tracks other athletes and you compare and you see who's doing what. Yeah. Yeah. And I live by that. It's a competitive tool. So you can break it out by age, Bob, and you can break it out by gender and, and your FTP, which is your fitness level. I, I took all those blockers off. I'm competing against anybody, any age, anything. And I'm in the top 10 of this app, which is something I watch. Try to stay in that top 10. That is 10. so cool. Oh, I, love, oh, it I love it. So anybody out there that's obese or knowing you need to do something, uh, it is a major undertaking. I will not say this is, don't worry about it. It's easy. Just come on over and do it. No. It's a it lifestyle change. On patience. You got to have patience, patience and consistency. Oh. It's all about, are you willing to change your lifestyle? And I mean, change it. Yeah. If you're a sedate couch potato, you got to blow that off and you got to become an athlete again. You pick the sport, walking, jogging, biking, rowing. I don't care what it is. Yeah. Or all of them. But you got to love it. You have to have a passion and you have to do it a lot. And it's your new, this isn't like until you lose 30 pounds. This is forever more now. Yep. This is the new you. And I don't no give, going back. I don't give obese people much hope because it's so hard. 
uh, you know, we have 70 million Americans that are obese, morbidly obese. Are they going to reverse out? No, very few. Mm-hmm. I don't even know the percent, but it's not high. So you're just a super stubborn guy, and you're a matter-of-factly guy. Do you think that weighs in as some of the reason why you could take on such a feat and do this? And, and or can anybody put their head around it and get it done? Okay, here's the problem. I was old. You know, I started at 60, 67, 66, 67. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people by that age that the obesity has given them significant problems, whether it's back or joints, or they have heavy diabetes issues, or they have handicaps that have come from this. There is possibilities if you wait too long, your body's not capable anymore. Mm-hmm. You can't do these kinds of, you know. And so I would caution anybody, if you're still healthy enough to change lifestyle, change it. Because it's going to change you if you don't change it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And lots of horrible things happen to people that are obese. Heart attack, number one, and then the list goes on. Cancer sure. comes much easier. Lots of problems surface. Now, can I die tomorrow from something? Sure. You know, I, even though I'm feeling great, cardio's great, strength is great, every, all the indicators, every test that a doctor gives you in, a, in your physical exam is great, but you can die tomorrow. Well. Might be time God wants you home. That's right. So, so I'm prepared that, you know, I'm not saying I'm invincible now. I'm just saying I've increased the odds as high as I could increase them. Yep. I've been to the near death experience. I don't want that again. I don't want to be laying in a hospital bed being told we can't stop it, John. You, you, you're, you're going to be gone in two hours. So that's the big message that I want to share is it may not be too late for you. Some of you listening, it may be too late. And that's the ones that it is not too late. Please change. Do it. Now, you can't talk people into this. You have to have that inner commitment. It has to come from you. Because when people would try to coach me into being fit again, it stressed me out and I ate more. (laughs) It backfires. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This has got to be coming from within. And you already have to have that spark in you that you want to do this. Mm-hmm. So if this session simply says, yeah, I'm going to step over that line and just do it. I'm making well, that, that decision. And that's a cool thing. When you and I talked before, you said, you know, this, this isn't just a story of a close call with death. This is a story that needs to be told to the world of the people that will listen that are facing obesity and uh, health issues that someone has been in their shoes, been in their space has tackled it and got it done and you're and you you're getting a second life again you you have more to live and they can do that too and that's noble about you you know that that was a really cool desire you had is to get this message out and I haven't had anyone on the show thus far that that has suffered like you have and had a near-death experience like you have and so I'm grateful that you're on the show to talk to this segment of the population and anybody that's healthy and happy, this could happen to you. And, and oftentimes the result of an injury and takes you out of the sports game and you become lethargic and sit and gain weight. You know what? As soon as you heal, get back in the game, you, you know, or else you're going to face the kind of things that you did. And we've been talking about senior citizens here, but there's people 30 years old that are obese, 40 years old that are obese, yeah. 50 that are obese. Any one of those people can have horrible things hit them and hit them and may likely hit them. So, yeah, if you're 30 and obese, man, you've, you've got it made because you can reverse out faster than I could have. Yep. If you're 40, you can reverse out. And I see people turning 50 and they actually say it's too late. Yeah. It's too late. I should have done it years ago, but now I, I just don't so have it. Give me my big bowl of ice cream. I'm going to watch Netflix. Exactly. And heck with it. Yeah. And I say to the 50 year olds that you are giving up because you think you're too old. Give me a break. <laughs> I was 66. Yeah. Yeah. It's never too late unless your health has caused horrible things that make it so you can't. For sure. Anymore. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, that says something about you, that uh, you were an athlete, you became an athlete again. There's all that athlete is down inside of you the whole time. Don't, don't let it die with you. Just, just push forward. And, and, uh, 
take on life like you have. And in just closing, gosh, I could talk to you forever on this, but in, we can't. We'll go ahead and wrap this up and uh, let's talk about any final thoughts you, you would say, you know, to the listening audience, uh, just from the experience you've gained from what you've gone through, John, as you look at life going forward, what is it that you would like to leave them? What is it that you plan to do going forward in the second half of your game? I would say that anyone listening that wants to make a lifestyle change is going to have a fabulous experience doing it. It's hard. It is so hard. I don't care how old or how young you are. It's, it's hard. It is so worth it. I was one of those people that watched the folks that lost 130 pounds. And I said, I don't relate. That's not me. You know, it's some fanatical person. I, I'm not going to do that. So I would say, come on and do this. Uh, the energy, the excitement, things you can do in life, things you gave up on, you know, that <clears throat> years ago you said, well, I'll never be doing that anymore. Baloney. You can still water ski. You can climb mountains. You can run. You can cycle. You can play tennis and get back into everything that you used to do. And the body has mitochondria cells. I learned this, that if you were ever an athlete in the past, no matter how long ago it was, soon as you call on those mitochondria cells, they light up and they're ready to go. And so you have an advantage over somebody that was not an athlete ever. If mm -hmm. they've always been a couch potato since childhood, they have a tougher hoe than if you were an athlete at some point. I didn't know we had cells waiting for you to wake up and use them. And they help you accelerate and take off. That's amazing. Yeah. How's it been on your relationship? You have a, a great marriage and have for years and years and years. And, Absolutely. Uh, she's here with you today. She's um, what, right here. What would you say about uh, your home life? Well, Robin has seen me go from obese to athlete. And she's loving this. She's seen it where I was athlete to obese, now back to athlete. So, yeah, she... She's a very, she's more grateful about the longevity that comes with it and For more sure. time together in life. And we do many things. We just climbed the, we went down to Zion National Park last week and to Bryce and hiked around and did all these things. That wasn't going to happen. No. You know, in the past. No. You know, we wouldn't, no. that wouldn't have been our first choice. We'd have gone to a movie, you know, so. Yeah. No, we're outdoors and we're loving life and it's, uh, it's well worth the hard ride that's ahead of you. How, you know what, how important was it to have a support team, to have your wife support you in your efforts to come back? Oh, I had support from her. I had a coach. I had a riding coach. I had a nutrition coach. Uh, I was surrounded by coaches. And I'm not talking about expensive coaches. These are, you know, modest charging coaches yeah and my two sons one's 35 one's 40 they are mega athletes they've been by my side they ride with me you know, both inside outside it you really need a support system around you it's tough to do it all alone but you know what if you are all alone hey it's tougher but you can do it what about the naysayers the people that try and submarine your efforts and try and break you down <laughs> yeah yeah, there's uh, sometimes the ones closest to you will be the ones trying to pull you back and drag you back. Yeah. Like, uh, who do you think you are? What are you trying to prove? You're trying to be a teenager again? You know, are you in a midlife crisis? Uh, what do you say to them, John Nam? I just say, guys, I'm loving life. That's all I know. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm loving life. <laughs> I'm oh. not trying to prove anything to anybody, you know. Yep. Well, I sure appreciate you being on the show. You're a fantastic mentor and uh, and an example of somebody who just has a zest for life and uh, will not give up on it. And uh, I appreciate you being here. It's been a wonderful time to spend with you, and you're a good friend. Yeah, you're a good friend, too. For the ones that make me free Open up your heart and you will see Live to be proud, I made the day Somebody else to make a way You gotta live like it's the 
It's the last day.